With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. In this week's Around the Coin podcast, we'll get to the details of what will make or break Bitcoin, as well as what other currencies have the same explosive growth potential in the future. Brian Fessel and I, you know, we through discussion on a comment thread on Quora, I think the idea stemmed. The three of us had been conversating back and forth for at least the last year, but I think someone, I forget who exactly it was, and it'd be interesting to actually just reference that comment thread, suggested hosting a podcast. And I think it kind of struck a, struck a chord with each one of us, realizing that it would actually be really, really entertaining and productive and valuable for a lot of other people to host that. And I think it's, it's, it's nothing like it exists of its kind. And, you know, I'm a huge fan. I listen to podcasts and audiobooks all the time. And when, when I saw the idea and saw the vision for, you know, a centralized podcast where people continue to come on the show, you get different viewpoints, you know, I would find that extremely valuable for myself. And I thought the rest of the world is going to also eat this up and absolutely love it. And then maybe who knows, you inspire people to work on ideas they wouldn't have otherwise and actually change people's lives to point them in directions or at least open their eyes to things they wouldn't have seen. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I, I remember the thread, uh, and uh, I think it's an awesome idea. I want you guys to at least send me that URL. I'd love to li- read that thread. Uh, it just totally escapes me right now. Mm, yeah, we'll do. I'll, I'll send it out. So, you know, I think the first order of business would be going around the table and giving a quick background. Um, so I'll kick it off. Um, you know, right, I would say, when I moved back from Singapore, I had been working on a... Uh, internal research and design project for Brookstone in Singapore in 2009 and moved to Los Angeles. Uh, when I moved here, I didn't have a firm direction on what I wanted to work, work, work on. Uh, California had its, had, its, uh, had its optimisms and hope, and I met Nate Stewart. And in meeting Nate, we, uh, he had been consulting for a company named Red Chapter Clothing, which was an exploding clothing brand doing fantastic and they needed a way to keep track of their inventory and sales, and they wanted data around different sales in different locations. They had about six or eight locations at the time, and there was really nothing on the market as far as a web-based point of sale. And Nate and I just started started cracking on it, started building something exactly what they wanted. <clears throat> I think the best way to develop a product that's never been built before is to literally consult with a customer along the entire value chain to build something that they really want. So we did that. Um, a couple of years passed and we started, you know, accumulating customers into the hundreds, really focusing around apparel as the core uh, 
core value or core customer, um, we raised uh, raised venture capital and brought the company to Austin, where you know we continue to grow it. It has been focused really around the small to medium sized business, but in this in this experience in this um, you know in this train of events, I learned a lot about distribution through web based point of sale. How the you know technically how it's built, the difference between the different uh, offerings out there kind of what the future holds. I try to get as many inputs as I can to imagine what it looks like. Um, I left Zing, in a, and I remain very amiable and stick on as an advisor to Zing Checkout with Nate uh, in 2011. And uh, with a co-founder by the name of Kyle Hill, started working on Flowtab, uh, really with the inspiration of building a mobile ordering product for the hospitality industry. So the idea was that you could go into a bar or a restaurant and order through the device that you already have in your pocket, right? It's extremely powerful, but people just aren't using them. And I think you'll see a bunch of different offerings where they'll have their own hardware, and that works to a certain extent. But the real winner was going to be using your phone. So this, with, our, with this vision in hand, uh, we built out the product. We moved to San Francisco. Uh, we raised money from investors, enough to get a seed and get 12 locations, uh, tested it. We tried all different marketing techniques. Um, we got tons of feedback. We even looked at different verticals in stadiums, in hotel ordering, in mobile food ordering to make sure that we were really on the right vertical. And um, extremely confident and, and pleased with how the I would call it a test went. Um, you know, we got up to twelve locations, and what we found. Uh, long story was that I believe very strongly that mobile ordering in bars, in particular. Is just too early. You know, the the customers, being the merchants themselves, are not ready and don't appreciate the demand for it. And the users themselves don't look to technology when they're inside of a social environment like that. You know, it's not something where you're at home with a food with a device and you want food as quick as possible. It's when you're out and you're socializing. There really wasn't a great fit for it. Um, now that being said, we had a great experience. We partnered with Dex One, who's a three thousand person public sales company. Um, you know, they looked at selling it. They sold it in Denver. They sold it in uh, Los Angeles and had plans to go to uh, Orlando. The company ended up going filing for bankruptcy and merging with their direct competitor, uh, which was kind of a, a spike in our in our uh, in our plans. But through the whole experience, it really gave me a sense of what mobile ordering looks like, where the future is for loyalty, and how to distribute to small, medium-sized business. So. That's that's kind of my background that I pull into it, and that and you know Fessel and Brian, as you know, I try to get as many inputs and as many perspectives to to make sure that we're on the right track and that we're going after something really meaningful. Um, so you know if that if that kind of makes sense, I'll pass it to Fessel to learn more about how you got into this. Um, well, my story is very simple. I got bored of what I was doing in the technology arena. I did it for 15 years, uh, and then the most uh, attractive thing to me was payments. I knew a little bit about payments, not too much, and the best way to jump into payments was to learn, and I took a sabbatical from work uh, for about a year and studied everything I knew about payments from scratch. I started with the regulatory frameworks, studied that from US, UK, Canada, Pakistan, India, and then jumped on to understanding the various payment branches like you know payment systems, networks, card schemes, banks, etc. Took about a year, a uh, little tough, a uh, lot of reading, 
but uh, I got on and uh, took some consulting assignments and kept learning, kept going, and uh, that's where I am today. Payments is uh, pretty much my mainstream. And then, and then, Brian, I know uh, you have a very interesting background as well. Why don't you tell us tell us your story here? Well, thank you, Mike and uh, Faisal. Um, this is a sidetrack for me as a kid wanting to be a physicist. And I did a lot of work in studying physics in high school and, and was on a, a pilot program to um, uh, work at uh, Princeton University when I was a sophomore in high school to study what is essentially now known as quantum physics. I got into computer programming very young. I built, um, surprisingly, a POS system uh, in an era when there really wasn't uh, personal computers to be found at uh, retail establishments to any high percentage. Uh, that actually did reasonably well. I sold that company to um, a database company called Ashton Tate in the uh, uh, late 1980s, I guess, mid-1980s, and um, was fascinated by the fact that hundreds of companies were calling on me to implement credit card processing into this POS system. And um, after I got out of it, I started researching payment systems and uh, what were now to be known as uh, independent selling organizations or ISOs. And uh, at the time, banks were not very efficient at electro making merchants become electronified, if you will. <clears throat> the payment system in that era was an imprint of um, a credit card, uh, perhaps a phone call for an authorization, but more likely than not, somebody looking through an old uh, flimsy booklet that came every day or so to see if a card was declinable or approvable. There were things called floor limits. It was a crazy world, but it worked. It worked reasonably well. Electronic uh, transactions um, allowed merchants to get payment quicker uh, and much more reliably, and the system grew from there. I um, became fascinated with it because I've studied money and I studied history for a very long time. In fact, one of my earliest archeolo archaeological digs was in a, a place uh, closer to where Faisal is, near the Tigris and Euphrates River, uh, and uh, not a place I would go right now, but it was many years ago. And uh, we um, helped dig up what is now known as Sumerian ring money. And I continue to have that. It's inspired me to understand payments to that level. F flash forward, maybe by three decades, I got myself involved in uh, payment processing for 30 years. Mostly um, not so much on the technology side because you couldn't do very much on technology. I tried. But bankers and merchants, uh, what... Are what I now term are practical and pragmatic. Uh, us technologists don't like this, but they live in a world uh, that is garnered by a much different vision than most of us technologists. We represent 1% of the world. The 99% uh, in the business world especially are uh, garnered by a practical and pragmatic uh, point of view. It was interesting because we were able to do amazing things uh, within the limitations uh, of the structure. Uh, last 10 years, a lot more innovation has taken place. Last three years, a uh, massive amount in of innovation. But a lot of that innovation is more towards us technologists and is really not filtering down to the merchant. Uh, I'm still talk to merchants on a daily basis. I don't need to sell. I don't really sell that often. But um, the many years of interacting with these merchants have allowed me to sort of get a, 
a slightly unusual, if not contrarian view of technology. Even though I am a technologist, I code, I solder. In fact, a few minutes ago, I was soldering something. So, you know, the, the bottom line is uh, where we are today is technology, I think, is finally caught up with the social implications of new payment systems. Uh, and we can dive into that as the, as the show goes on in its iterations. Um, so that's kind of where I am. I, I do a lot of consulting. I do a lot of speaking with uh, venture capitalists, uh, Wall Street analysts. For the last 10 years, I've talked to Wall Street analysts about payments um, uh, almost on a weekly basis. We have roundtables. Uh, as far as uh, venture capitalists, probably the last three years, especially the last two years, um, uh, some amazing people I've got to know. Uh, startups, dozens dozens uh you name it i've 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 probably talked to them uh uh, and um so uh i'm fascinated by all this um as far as algorithmic currency things like bitcoin litecoin i think um it is an exceedingly fascinating subject and uh it has more historical preference uh precedence than i think anybody could possibly imagine we've actually relived these experiences uh about 25 times in history and um I hope to bring some of that relevance to these conversations. Excellent, Brian. <clears throat> Thank that's you. An, that's an amazing, amazing story, and uh, certainly a very strong trajectory for the future. Um, Thank you. Do you guys have anything else you want to say before kind of diving into the content? Well, I'd like to bring up the fact that you are the textbook example of why empiricism and empirical study is immensely important in technology and within startups. Um, You found out through the school of reality that you can create the most amazing products, but until you actually activate the sensors in reality uh, to go out and talk to merchants and to actually experience the world through their eyes, this technology is unfortunately just going to be a fantasy um and um things like flow tab and um online ordering and uh remote ordering or however you want to typify it it is heartbreaking and it's frustrating to see incredibly brilliant ideas with incredibly enthusiastic people behind it come face to face with the hard wall of the practical and pragmatic merchant and i can spend hours talking about amazingly successful startups who are now hitting that hard wall and um, it's frustrating to me and you'll hear it I'm not a negative guy but when as soon as you hear me become negative or sounding negative it's that reason so that's the decoder ring for me when you hear me sort of slag on a company or slag on their ideas it's not because I dislike the company or their philosophies or their employees Quite the contrary. I'm frustrated because they are incredibly talented and they're going down a dead end. And just like any of us, when we see friends or people we care about going down a dead end, what do you do? You have two options. Three, maybe. Either you sit there and and watch it and it's frustrating. You turn your back and run the other way and ignore that you ever saw it. Or you raise your hand, even if you're not getting paid, and say, hey, guys, what in the heck are you doing? Sure. And I, mean, that's, uh, I find myself I, I, there a lot. It's almost destruction, right? It's unnecessary destruction if you know something that they don't. And I think that's what you're, you're alluding it's, to and feeling. It's, it's an immense waste of talent. It's an, a huge waste of talent. And, 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 Mike, you know this. You know all of the work you've done 
in, in this sector, and you know that the, 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 the work product and mine energy and life energy that have been put into these things, um, I can name a dozen startups right now that are uh, collectively burning through a billion dollars and probably possibly a thousand years of man hours on products that will never really see your grandmom's pocketbook or your mom's pocketbook or your freaky uncle's wallet. It will never be out there. Yeah. You know? And and maybe this is another way to look at this this platform that we're creating is it is a different perspective, right? It's a it's a platform to stand on and voice your opinions and your perspectives and thoughts to as many people as possible, right? There may be people inside of startups that, that listen to this podcast and now think a little bit differently. Maybe they work on something different. Maybe they ask more questions and learn more and develop the product in a different way. And, I mean, that would be incredibly inspiring if, if we were able to accomplish this. You know, Mike, what's really fascinated me, especially on Quora, I don't blog. I, if you do a search on me, I, the only thing I've done is really Quora. I've done writing. I've, I wrote for Byte magazine, and I'm scared uh, on how old that makes me, but I'm an ancient character here. Uh, I was a writer for Byte and PC magazine, and I... Did a lot of work with John Dvorak in the day. Um, but what's fascinating fascinated me about Quora right now is a lot of young technologists at the companies that you and I will be speaking of and Feist will be speaking of have reached out to me out of frustration because they they have these great ideas and they sit in these incredible brainstorming sessions and they feel empowered and then they go and they deploy these products. And they fall apart. And, it, and what really breaks my heart is it breaks their spirit. It absolutely breaks their spirit because they are led down this path that you are a disruptor. You are changing the world. And that's great to mobilize the troops. But once you get to the top of what mountain you think you're trying to get to, and then you realize you've just climbed a little hill, that is immensely mind-blowing for people. So I've I've become almost uh, a consoler of these uh, of these broken wills, if you will. And um, I can tell you that at this point, less let's call it less than a hundred of these people have reached out to me, and I've become incredibly close friends with some of them. And um, sometimes in the companies where I'm considered public enemy number number one, because I'm not drinking the Kool Aid, mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I'm not waving the flag, and I and I'm anti startup or anti VC or whatever, which is fascinating because the VCs that are contacting me think that it's the opposite. It's that I'm contrarian to you know the Kool Aid that's being served. Mm -hmm. If that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's incredibly meaningful, Brian. You need you need people like you in in the world to to take people off their, their front. I hope not. I, I don't want to run into another one of me. I, you know, the funny thing is, I I had uh, for a Sunday, I had three Skype calls today, and uh, in all three Skype calls, uh, one person uh, has already talked to you, Brian, and he talked about your Sumerian ring, and I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> And uh, yeah. the other two people I talked about, you know, well, they said, well, you know, we need to reach out to Brian Romley and just don't know how to. And I said, well, just contact him, you know. Uh, they think you're very, they're very intimidated by you, obviously. Oh, sorry uh, about that. Well, I, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's, uh, I, I think it's just a perspective that they see because yeah. you're so authoritative on Quora. But um, they, they really want to get your opinion, you know. 
Well, I thank you, Faisal, and I appreciate that. To anybody, my door is open. I, you know, if 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 uh, you know uh, Niagara Falls comes my way, all right, I'll deal with it. But you know, I I speak to anybody, and if, in fact. Through the years of dealing with merchants, 30 years of this, the one thing I can tell anybody and one thing if I could ever pass on is that every human being I've ever met has an incredible story. And they have an incredible sto- uh, story that is a journey but is also insightful. There's wisdom. Uh, there's wisdom that I found. And, and uh, you know, some of what I'm doing here is a payback to all those people I spent hours with. I mean, uh, we're talking about 4 o'clock in the morning you know, helping a restaurateur open his business and cutting onions with them. That's how I would quote unquote sell. And, and, and I feel embarrassed calling this sales because I feel sales is an incredibly honorable thing, the most honorable profession in the world. And I think one of, the, the, uh, one of my hidden agendas is to try to get that back into the mindset. This idea of automatic selling and that some computer is going to sell you is ridiculous. It's an antiquated notion. Um, the reality is when you go out and you spend time with people like this and you see the, the world through their eyes, they're not PhDs. They're not masters. Some of them, in fact, a lot of them really barely finished high school, yet they're running immensely immensely profitable businesses and they are the textbook example of Darwinian achievement if you're running for example a cafe uh, or a coffee house and Starbucks is three blocks away and uh, the tea leaf is here and all blue bottle and all these other trendy or not so trendy or popular corporate coffee houses yet you're still surviving and thriving in that environment as far as I'm concerned I want to know you I want to know you because you have something of knowledge to impart upon me. And I've heard these stories time and time again. And that's what I try to bring to this. And it sounds unconventional because it's not what you're you're, you're trained at Harvard. It's not what is going on in boardrooms. Um, Most of the executives I talk to, and I spend a lot of time doing private consultations with executives, and it's, you know, I don't want to say it's embarrassing, but a lot of times they sort of have this awakening to realize that maybe most of their career they were creating products and services and ideas in a vacuum of, unfortunately, yes-men. Yeah, it's very true, Brian. And, I mean, and, and, and this yes-men concept, this is another problem I'm having. This yes-men concept is infecting Silicon Valley. In fact, it is such a problem right now that I think that it is the potential undoing of this incredible seven years ago, Steve Jobs, just a few days ago was the anniversary. Steve Jobs walked onto a stage and said, I am going to introduce something that's going to change the world. We call it the iPhone. Okay, You and I, all of us on this listening, have been directly impacted by the economy that drew up around it. It will make the web and internet economy, whatever that was prior, look like it was kindergarten. Mm-hmm. Um, this this was a, just seven years ago. We're babies in all of this. Mm-hmm. But within the Silicon Valley already, this mindset has been developed of, I better build a startup with yes men around me who are, you know, 20-somethings that have to share the same vision and look at the world in the same way. And we go and we run our plays like a, a, a you know, mechanical football team. And it, it, this is ridiculousness. This is the opposite of what the Silicon Valley was about. And it's frustrating to me. 
uh, and it's frustrating to some of the VCs. That's why some of the uh, the angel and series, uh, you know, series A money is starting to dry up uh, because. This mindset and mentality is, is um, in my view, cancerous. Yeah. Brian, I, I, I completely agree and see it. And, I mean, it, it has happened before, and I'm sure it will happen again. And it's just a consensus, a mass consensus around particular beliefs, um, you know, and it, and, and it rolls. Um, so what I would propose is that we cover these three topics around Bitcoin. Um, we'll roughly break them into 20-minute segments each. I think the length of the overall conversation is important to keep consistent, and I want to make sure that I, I make as very few cuts as possible, uh, and it's kind of decreased the value and quality of the of the talk. So I'd say I'll, I'll you know I'll kind of point us to different uh, topics as we go through. But if that sounds good with you guys, I'd love to jump in. Perfect. Great. So go. <clears throat> so today is uh, is really centralized around the theme of Bitcoin. Now, other topics may pull into this centralized theme, but around the centralized theme, we'll have three specific things that will kind of give us a focus and direction. I think these are important things to discuss. Um, the first three, the three topics will be, what are the key risks and enablers to Bitcoin? Things that will either contribute to its success or failure. The second is, is there an opportunity to arbitrage Bitcoin? So you have multiple markets and multiple exchanges. Can you buy and sell and make a profit doing so? And then the third is, will other currencies, Litecoin, Namecoin, etc., in the future, will they be successful? Will there be multiple cryptocurrencies, and or is there a winner-take-all perspective where there's going to be one mass currency and everyone's going to drink from the same pool? And uh, you know, we could talk about the different possible outcomes there. But I'd say let's start with the first. I think it's a really interesting topic. Um, maybe Fessel, if you want to start with giving your perspective on what are the key risks. As you see them, maybe, in, and I think would be interesting as always, Vessel, is if uh, you know you kind of inject your view from that part of the world. I think that's an incredible perspective that not many people get to see and share. Um, you know, so any unique perspectives from the, the Eastern world or a through Asia, I think, is really interesting. And maybe, um, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Well, I think for starters, uh, I'm very uh, cautious about how the regulators would look at it. Specifically, if they have a myopic view of Bitcoins, they will make it almost impossible for Bitcoins to be traded or uh, you know, buy and sell Bitcoins in this part of the world. And it's coming that way. China's clamping down. India's clamped down. Singapore, by the way, was one to embrace it. So that's a, a bit of good news. Uh, so regulation, obviously, is very important. And more so is, even though everyone knows about Bitcoin because almost every media outlet has covered it, um, there seems to be an issue in buying Bitcoins, uh, and everyone's buying it for speculative reasons, which I feel is not the right uh, you know, way to go about it, but hey, who am I to say it? Mm -hmm. But uh, buying Bitcoins is a huge issue, because if you buy it from here, uh, the only way to buy it is through a couple of exchanges in uh, Europe, and that means you know, getting verified, sending the money across, and that time frame is about anywhere from 10 to 15 days, which is quite a lot, and not many people have the patience for it. And I keep advocating that the, the best way to get Bitcoin is to sell a product or a service and get paid in it. But, uh, you know, many people want to, you know, test the waters and, you know, buy a few coins and just play with them. So buying is a huge issue in this part of the world. And if they clamp down more on it, uh, you know, if they mitigate the buying process, I think that will really stunt the growth over here. 
So that that to me is 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 very important. Merchant acceptance, you know, obviously will come into play later on. But uh, for people who need to buy bitcoins to pay for services, let's say in the West, they simply don't have a, an an easy means to do so. Do you think it's inevitable in that part of the world, or if if there are going to be a few things that you know, if if twenty years from now, Bitcoin is not even a, a not even a word that people know, what what's the reason for it? Do you think? Hard to say, but I, I think the growth is, it, it, it cannot be stopped. I think it's an internet phenomenon. It'll keep on going, if not Bitcoin, and maybe something else. Uh, if not the legal way, then the illegal way of getting it. Um, but, you know, with, there's an absolute vacuum of, you know, companies like Coinbase or BitPay or the others in this part of the world. So even if I accept Bitcoins, I'm playing on the volatility risk. I've accepted $20 worth of Bitcoins, you know, it could be $10 by the time I get it cashed out, etc. And cashing out is not easy. So, you know, until and unless players in this part of the world enter uh, the the Bitcoin uh, ecosystem as exchanges or market makers, uh, I think the growth is going to be very limited. And the only way companies are going to enter it is if the regulators see it that way, that this is an alternate currency that they have to accept, uh, it can be taxed, etc., I mean, uh, Indian uh, economy was just about to take off with respect to Bitcoins, and then the regulator RBI, which is the Reserve Bank of India, clamped down and they shut the site down. Hmm. So, you know, so it is a huge risk in this part of the world. Um, and, and I say this, that central banks have a very obtuse view on Bitcoin. Um, some are holding out, some are sitting on the sidelines. Most of them have given an opinion that it does carry a risk. And I, and I say this because I think they don't understand Bitcoin as much as they need to. Obviously, they are economists and so forth, so they are thinking along the traditional lines. But uh, unless they don't look at it from the viewpoint of how this currency is not just a, a, a geographically specific currency, but uh, one that is all around and all over the place. Uh, and, and they need to somehow incorporate it and inculcate it within their own uh, economies, um, Bitcoin is going to have a tough time in this part of the world. Then. Mm. I, I, really, I really believe that it's going to be catalyzed by a few large, very successful examples. And I think with Starbucks publicly announcing their willingness to accept Bitcoins, those are the things that I think are really going to start to push it forward. And bankers and, and these people and... Uh, the political offices of these countries that are making decisions, there's not very many of them that are, but when they see examples of a country, say the United States, starts to really flourish because of uh, you know, Starbucks's, in this case example, to accept Bitcoins, you know, it's really, it's it's inevitable. And I think once you, you know, start I, to get a few major merchants doing it successfully. I had a talk with a, a central banker recently, and I was telling him the example of Starbucks, and, he, and they said, you know, well, Faisal, uh, I really couldn't care if you could buy coffee with it. What I, you know, that's not a strong enough argument in this part of the world for Bitcoin to be legalized. Um, if, for ha if, for example, Western Union were to accept Bitcoins and somehow bring in, you know, remittances easily and more quickly into, you know, the developing world, that's a very strong argument. So the anchor in this part of the world is very differently inherently from what uh, you know an anchor might be or a key player might be in the U.S. Uh, it won't be Starbucks, it won't be Virgin Air, it won't be you know uh, Netflix. It will be something totally different. It'll, it'll have to be something that these economies depend on. And at this point in time, it would either be a regional player um, that accepts Bitcoin or um, 
some form of a you know uh, uh, an institution that helps bring in remittances, cross border transfers, etc. Mm. True, 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 true. Brian, do you have any thoughts? Have you heard of Bitcoin before? Bitcoin, interesting. <clears throat> Let me give this um, a quick perspective. Sure. Money is symbolic. It always has been. It always will be. We try to fool ourselves thinking that there's scarcity for gold and silver, diamonds, puka shells, but it's symbolic. It's symbolic of life energy, how long we have on the planet, what we expend in our time, converted into something portable to acquire things. Uh, that's all it is. And we are so caught in the forest, it's hard to get outside and see the trees of the forest that we're in. All of these debates are really just theoretical debates. And the debates are between the people who are in the control of political and religious systems, for example, versus the people who feel like they're out of that control cycle. So the, the legacy people, the people who are in current currencies, they're going to be having fear over you and I and the, maybe the rest of the world assigning value to something we might call a Bitcoin. All of it is psychological. We can sit here and talk about the mathematics and all that, but it's psychological. 6,000 years ago, I would bring a bushel to, of wheat to the temple, and we would call it a temple, but really it was the, the, the center of uh, the social and civic uh, part of this particular town in Sumeria. And the temple would say, this is your payment for living in this organized society. We might call that taxes, but it was a lot more than that. It's a lot more based on a family structure than a political or a religious structure. And once you really understand their philosophies and you read the cuneiform in their clay tablets, and they left records. They left tons and tons of records telling us their stories. We know how much a bushel of wheat cost. It cost one shekel. And, uh, and what is a shekel? Well, it ultimately became a bronze ring coin. Make an okay sign with your finger and circle that inside. That's what ring coin was. It was designed to be that size. It was designed to be symbolic representation of money currency. Current. A current is a flow of water, and currency was based on that. Currency is designed to always flow. And the earliest, you know, the earliest definitions of this stuff was about flowing. We had commodities, bushels of wheat, seeds, grains, and then we had currencies, which was designed to flow around and to try to enrich our, our greater family, our clan, our towns, whatever. You know, so we created that symb symbology. I'm looking at a Sumerian ring coin, and I know that thousands of people died over this particular coin because I pretty much know its history from the, the cuneiform tablets that were near it uh, when it was discovered. And you, we can laugh today, but 10,000 years from now, our great-great-grandkids or however far away are going to laugh at our idea of one digit, one placeholder, increment it by one placeholder instead of six digits, make it seven or ten digits, and how much time and effort we put into it. Okay, perspective. Bitcoin. Bitcoin is exactly the same thing. Now, whether or not a government recognizes it means whether or not you're going to be able to pay your taxes with it. But that is really the only other limitation. Uh, if, if you and I decide to, uh, to trade the buttons on our shirt, 
mm. and assign a value to it. There's nothing any regulator can do to get in the middle of that. Uh, it's th this this paradigm changing. Uh, this is a paradigm-changing event, very much like we saw in um, in telephone, right? I have a I have a phone bill on my office wall from the 1980s. It is about twenty-seven thousand dollars, and I look at that bill and I wonder how much money I spent over the years operating companies that had outbound, inbound, toll-free telemarketing services. Today, that same phone bill would cost me about twelve dollars. Yeah. Now, this is what's happening in currency. This is what's happening with the movement of money. And this is why, in the longer-term perspective, the cost of moving money is going to become irrelevant because money will flow like bits. In fact, bits will become valuable. Bytes will become valuable. Let's put it that way. Uh, and, and, and that's the premise. Now, I can go down that whole theoretical path. But today... Bitcoin and other algorithmic currencies are being mined. We're in, we're in the kindergarten, not in the pre-pre-preschool of this. You have to mine it first. And why do we mine it? Because we're proving that there is uh, scarcity by solving enormously long algorithms in decades that move forward as, as quantum computing takes over. Uh, these algorithms are going to become ex exceedingly more complex. But as we list, you know, list these different uh, alternative, you know, altcoins, if you will, algorithmic currencies, they all have their benefits and features. But ultimately, they will be regulated and they will be taxed, uh, just like anything else. When you ultimately convert something of value into a currency, it will become a taxing event. And I think most countries around the world and most regulators I've talked to will say, you know, it's it's held in a security. We call Bitcoin, and then you convert it into a currency, and then we tax it. But at some point, the network effect that took place in Sumeria 6,000 years ago, one Sumerian ring coin was worthless. Two became more valuable. 60,000 became immensely more valuable, and then millions became more valuable. This is where Bitcoin is right now. Bitcoin is rel relatively, quote-unquote, Zero intrinsic value, and that's only because the network effect has not even begun to take hold. It is so thinly traded. It is such a small blip of money transacted. Yet, even then, it's still starting to challenge other payment vehicles with the dollar volume that's being transacted in it. Now, remember, in Bitcoin, there's only 25 million units that will be created. They will be fractionalized to eight decimal places. And when you run the mathematics about the average person owning a fraction of Bitcoin, individual Bitcoin prices theoretically can go into the millions of dollars. Uh, you know, this is, this is the promise that all of us miners have. I mean, I've been mining for a while all sorts of algorithmic currencies. And uh, more just because I just love the math and the hardware and one of the things I was soldering earlier today. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so th that's what the mining is about. The mining is to try to create the, 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 the scarcity. And whenever you, you create value, you must have scarcity. But to create a currency, you must have a current, like a current of water. Stagnant water will not be a very pleasant place to be around over time. Stagnant money will not be pleasant. There's not, so, too, many there's not too many buttons getting traded today. That's right. <laughs> that's bucket, right. 
Yeah. The, so so once once we all agree upon the network effect, then these other alternative uh, alternative algorithmic currencies. I believe there are going to be many. I believe there will be so many that we're probably going to wind up losing count of losing count of them. And I believe that all of them will become valuable in some in some level. Um, now, this this really. Do you think they'll parallel? Uh, you think they'll parallel? Say, you know, other major industries. Say, Google pops to mind, where you have Google and it's the primary search engine. But then you have alternatives. You have maybe two to three significant alternatives. Not really. I think those paradigms are smashed at this point. There will be dominance, but you know we're talking about we're talking about such a tremendously large market. I mean, I, I you know you, if you look at how big assigning a value to a byte of information, if you look how big that will become. And you really do a, 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 a Einsteinian thought experiment on what this really means and how it will transform society. It is really hard to comprehend how a single system will ever be in place. It is not a winner-take-all scenario. It will appear to be that way for perhaps a reasonably long period of time in most people's mind, maybe ten years. But in, in you know, in the there will be gold. There'll be silver, there'll be copper, and there'll be all sorts of variations. Currently, in the in in, in today's lineup, gold is Bitcoin. So, Brian, what kills it? So, ten years from now, twenty years from now, we look back and there's no Bitcoin. Hypothetically, if that world were to play out, what what is the reason for it? It would it would it would evolve just like when you look at any town that gets a new mm -hmm. freeway, all the all the paths don't get erased, all the side streets and main highways don't get erased. You just have different levels of travel. And again, if we really theoretically look at this like a current, uh, like a connection, like a circuit, you realize that there's no reason to take certain circuits out unless they are completely meaningless. Um, so why would Bitcoin be supplanted? Well, one of the fears that a lot of people don't want to think about is quantum computing. Uh, you know, Bitcoin is in, a, in an arms race right now with application-specific ICs with smaller and smaller nanometer, nano, nanometer size circuitry. Uh, some of the most amazing uh, advancements in nanometer uh, uh, shrinking is taking place in Bitcoin. In fact, uh, KNC and Cointeria uh, are smaller nanometer-sized circuitry than what you will find in the latest iPhone. And so they're leading the way, and the reason for that is the calculation and the heat, the dissipation, and the energy usage of these things. Mining is always going to be important because mining is really doing two things at the same time. It's finding new Bitcoin, and it's also creating the blockchain. The blockchain is the public ledger. And I think... I really want to stress the fact how important the public ledger is because that is the transformative thing that's taking place in all of this that is not really being understood by popular commentators, by even the people who are the crypto punks and people that have put this together. Um, the public ledger, I believe, is a secret hidden agenda that will, and that's not a hidden agenda in a proper sense, it's really the hidden feature Within algorithmic currency, that is the most one of the most transformative things. Um, I'm, I'm I'm an advocate of having a public ledger that's open for all to view. Two private ledgers, one from the buyer and one from the seller or the sender and receiver. 
that's encrypted and can only be unencrypted under the right set of circumstances, and perhaps, perhaps even an encrypted public ledger that can only be viewed under certain circumstances. Why is that important? Because a public ledger authorizes the fact that there was a transaction. It quote-unquote is anonymous. That's a bunch of BS. There is no such thing as anonymousness ever. There never will be. That's a fallacy. At some point in time, you will not be anonymous. The passwords you and I may have used in 1990s are completely worthless today. They can be cracked very quickly. So your history will not be anonymous. Yeah, I, think, yeah, I think the NSA taught us a lesson there. Yeah, and, 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 but I'm not, I'm not an advocate of giving up liberty. That's a completely different political dis discussion. But what I'm saying is it's a fallacy to believe that long-term you can remain anonymous. You can't. And I think we all need to just get over that and, and operate in a manner that, that makes sense. Now, why is the public ledger important? Because if I choose to reveal myself as a recipient or sender, I now assign a time, a place of a transaction. The public ledger can announce something of that transaction, but my private ledger, I can open to reveal to say, I created a contract between mm. party A and party B. Because guess what? Whoever pays you, it's a contract. It's a tort. It's an agreement. It's a contract. And what really all forms of payment is about is about a contract. It's about a promise to do something uh, you know, I will give you product A if you give me amount B, sure. you know, things of that nature. So this is getting maybe a little too much into minutia, but th I think it's important to understand that as we build these blockchains, as we build the public ledger, we're exposing a history of transactions. And that's a good thing and a bad thing. Just like all great you know, uh, inventions, fire, you know, uh, you know, you can burn you or it can keep you warm. It can cook your food or it can burn down your house. Um, the public record will allow us to do things that we could never do before. First off, electronic signatures in real estate don't work. You want to buy a house? You can't do an electronic signature. But perhaps a public ledger system would allow that type of transaction to be much more recognized because you can reveal the buyer and seller if there is a challenge. Yeah, Somebody challenges me on a transaction, I can reveal my key and you'll see that yes, on February tenth, you know, two thousand seven I did this transaction and yes, this is what it was for. Now if the sender or the recipient doesn't want to reveal their key, fine. But you know, I, I can already prove that what I did. Mm -hmm. And they would have to, you know, maybe through social legal pressure mm -hmm. I'm not saying they have to reveal their encryption, but they might reveal and say, yes, here, we consummated a transaction. Um, it's hard for entrenched legacy players to think in these terms because it is really, truly paradigm changing. Uh, that and this idea that I've had ever since I worked with a company called First Virtual, one of the first internet payment companies. God rest her soul, they, they were great, uh, but many people forgot. Uh, the original premise was doing microtransactions, and that was to be able to send small amounts to anybody you see fit in their model via email. Sounds familiar? Some people are trying to you know, do the same thing today, but their, theirs was a much purer and simpler system. Um, in those days, I theorized what I called nanotransactions, microtransactions and mini transactions. A nanotransaction can be fractionalized sense, if you will, in current current. Uh, a, a, a microtransaction could be uh, pennies 
and a, a mini transaction, sub $3, sub $5. All of those transaction streams are impossible to do electronically today uh, correctly because of the cost structure involved. Those things could change because of Visa and MasterCard could change those rules, um, and uh, perhaps they might. But the idea of being able to send, along with my bytes, a value, a dollar amount, is transformative. It will yeah. absolutely you know, change advertising. I, 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 I so agree with you, and I think there's so many different verticals that are going to be extremely um, you know, pushed in a different direction. I, this is how I explained it at the dinner table at Christmas, was there's really three pillars, right? Three, there's a perfect storm of demand. You know, the world has essentially a 3% tax due to the credit card fees associated with every transaction, sure. almost across every different vertical. You have technology that now is at a point where literally it's built, right? You have Bitcoin in operation. It is stable. It is secure. It is open source. And then you have the social aspect to where people can tweet about it. You know, once it's once it hit TechCrunch and it hit CNN and it hit all the major public uh, publishers, you now have you know hundreds and millions of people, billions of people being exposed to it. And that's you know that sits on top of the technology platform. But really, it's the people's willingness to use Facebook, Twitter, texting. You know, seven years ago, I'm not sure that it could have spread the way the way it is. And yeah. I think, especially in other countries where you have such a demand for micro exchanges, um, and I think it's it's interesting. I just I, about three quarters of the way through this book called Currency Wars by yes. J- James Rickards. Beautiful. And what I found was, you know, one interesting analogy uh, that he makes is the government's job in in distributing and regulating money is to act as a, a gear on a bike. So when you when you ride a bike, right, and you could say that the society as a whole is the person driving the bike, you want to go as fast as possible with as little energy expenditure as possible. And this is operating, you know, completely efficiently, um, optimally efficiently. And the government's job is to change gears, right? You want to put the person in high gear when they're going uphill and low gear when they're going downhills, right? And and, and that's such an interesting analogy because it shows the importance of switching gears. Now, I think what's interesting with Bitcoin is that the gear switching is 100% automatic, right? You, have, you don't have the distribution of millions of dollars through the Fed, Federal, uh, Federal Reserve. You now have this done systematically through mining, uh, through natural growth um, of the currency. And I think understanding what the backing is behind it, right? Like government, you know, 1971, when gold-backed tender was removed from the U.S. dollar, that was incredibly impactful because now you have the ability to essentially determine, the government can, the Federal Reserve, what the value of the dollar is, right? You pump more dollars into the system, each one becomes subsequently lesser value. And you cannot do that with Bitcoin, and I think that's really the magic in it. Um, you know, of course, there's many other applications where that it becomes really interesting, but that to me is the core of why it's so stable and I think will really survive. Um, well, you know, Mike, uh, the, the biggest challenge is that it's so easy to slip into the politics of this too easily, and I, I try very hard not to. The political discussion will be a debate that will never end, and the people who are in current control positions are going to defend their control positions. The people who are outside of those control uh, positions are going to try not to do that. Uh, you know, t- 10,000 years from now, it's going to be hilarious no matter how we look at it. What I'm really talking about, though, is the idea that, you know, your time on this planet is valuable. And when somebody sends you money, 
uh, you are getting a, a, a transaction. You're getting paid for your time, maybe. Uh, when you do work, you're getting paid for your time. When I view an advertisement in the current model, for example, I go perhaps to Google in this old paradigm. It's an old paradigm. People think it's new. It's old. It's an old paradigm where I click on a link. Uh, Google makes some money. Somebody's cash register, cha-chings. The merchant uh, who advertised, he, he might be paying $7 a click-through. Now, just because I clicked on a link, does it signal that I'm going to buy something? No. And if you look at the pay-per-click um, you know, uh, conversion rates over the last 10 years, it's a heartbreak. It's a story of depression. The pay-per-click rates have fallen to the floor. It's a broken system. And so what that means is you and I are valuing our time much more. Uh, when, when advertisers are taking our attention away from stuff that we think are more important, um, we expect to be compensated in some way. An advertisement is a compensation because it entertains us in theory. And that's the trick that everybody's trying to perform right now. What form of advertising it we can trick somebody into think is entertaining that will give them three minutes of something that's funny that might go viral that's nice but it's not very efficient however if I know a little bit about you because of your social signals and um, I'm able to send you money for your time all of a sudden the Google advertising model is done it's all over because uh, the uh, they must see that coming, right? You have to believe that Google sees that coming, and that's why they're building so many different products and verticals. Yes, it. but but you know, the old guard is the new guard is the old guard. Listen, everybody loves disruption until they look behind them and they realize that they're being disrupted. The people that are joking around that we're disruptors and we're changing the world now, the rate of change is so quick. Two years later, you're being disrupted. And, and that's why it's so hard. So, yes, Google is trying to expand upon this, but to completely change a paradigm, that, that is to empower the, the advertiser instead of giving money to a third party, a, 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 a mediator, they're giving it directly to the consumer and they're paying them for their time. In fact, it's more than that. They're, they're paying for their pat patronage, whatever that might mean for that particular company. And if you see this, if you see currency flowing freely, if you see bitcoins and micro and nano and mini transactions flowing freely, we start asking ourselves, what does it cost to acquire a new customer? And Mike, I'm, I'm sure in your years of going out to see merchants, you probably don't hear that. But over 30 years, I've spent my time studying this. I ask merchants, and they're not a Harvard MBA. Some of them are. And even they don't know. How much does it cost to send somebody through your doors? They don't know. It's a simple calculation. I won't get into the details. Cost to acquire a customer and cost to maintain a customer are incredibly valuable tools. And it's the last thing that shows up on anybody's super uh, chart of big data. You know, they throw all this big data at you thinking that merchants are going to use it. They don't, and they don't really have the data. What, is it, what does it cost to acquire a customer? I'll tell you. A typical restaurant, $350 to acquire a customer, just about. $350 to get a new customer in the door. Now, if I know that, and I can prove it to you, and I can, in fact, find somebody who I think is amiable to my cuisine at my restaurant and is in the vicinity, and I know it costs me $350, how much will I send to this person for them to walk into the door? You know, do I give them a discount? Is that a theoretical payment, or do I give them a theoretical amount? 
in, in algorithmic currency. You see how this is changing. The idea is that the internet is a, was about one-to-one -to, -one to begin with, peer-to-peer. Then it sort of gestated into this, the search engine model, where it's, you know, not really peer-to-peer -peer anymore. And this currency is going to change that again. Just like the internet changed the way we view the world, just like the way mobile devices change the way we view the world, these algorithmic currencies are going to do the same thing. It's hard for technologists and people who are in technology companies today to really understand this. But I can tell you, I know of about a dozen 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds that get it in a heartbeat and they are building these companies and they're going to make, unfortunately, the legacy companies that we think are the coolest startups right now look ridiculous. Yeah, that's so in true, In three years. Brian. I mean, you know, you look at it and you have to believe that this is going to be, if successful, which, you know, I firmly believe it will be, it is going to be a, a just as much of a dent, maybe, as the internet itself. And I mean, that's such a, that's, that's such an unfathomable concept uh, it's life-changing it's life-changing yeah. mike because i can send faisal for his time today if i wanted to i can send faisal you know how, how, whatever i think is valuable and i could press a button and send it over to him and he could send it to me and the money is flowing around and we build this this currency in our wallets and we do with it what we will if we look at doggy coin and i'm sorry doggy coin this is a whole thing is funny but if you look how it's being used and, and, and this is going to be off the wall. I advise anybody to sort of research what happened with doggy coin. It started as a joke. It, it was a joke, but the thing has value. And guess how people are using it? Programmers are using it to tip other programmers for different cool ideas they came up with. It's yeah. got its own subculture. So if you wrote a cool piece of code, I might toss you a thousand doggy coins. And today it might be worth three or four bucks. But tomorrow they may be worth $10,000. And you have to believe, right, I, I think, look at that and say, those are early adopters. Why wouldn't yes. everyone on the internet, why, why I believe, you know, very strongly that the, you know, every publisher, I think news publishers had a terrible transition to the internet. Right? Sure. When, when newspaper was distributed uh, by, by delivery, you know, you charge for it and it's very easy to understand and you just pay for the paper and you, and you get it. But when you're looking at it on the internet, uh, people associate it with free, right? Why should I have to pay to read something? It's just not not something that people want to or are willing to pay for oftentimes. So by charging or throwing ads on there, you really you know, lower the quality of the experience. And I think it's been really tough, obviously, as for those companies have seen. Could you pay people to or ch charge people to view your site per time? And could you make it donation-based, Right, like I would, I would set Brian. Brian Romney has a time per minute that he's worth. Right, and you could change this. This is completely up to you. But everywhere you go, if you read Quora answers, if you read my Medium article, you read my New York Times article. The more traffic I get, the more value I bring to the world. The more I subsequently get tipped. I think Mike, that's super interesting. Mike, what if those bits themselves, the bits that are being sent to you, the bytes that are being sent to you already have a value attached to them. Imagine, if you will, a new communication protocol like TCIP that already has a value attached to it. We wouldn't even know that we're spending this money. It will be flowing like currents. See, this is the whole thing. Uh, and, and, you know, let's look at Steve Jobs. Let's look at uh, what iTunes and music was about. When Steve came into the world, there was all sorts of pirated music flowing around and I participated I was very much part of bands and music at the time and uh, and I participated in these 
debates where you know people would say how in the heck are you going to get me to pay money for music when i can pirate it and get it for free steve jobs the contrarian that he was and the master of will and strength stood up with a flag and said i'm going to make it so damn good for you to want to pay me 99 cents that you won't even care that you could get it for free do you see the value is going to be built around the technology apple in its brilliance is not just a software company but a hardware company but also a marketing company but also a philosophy and if steve's philosophy lives on i hope it does uh, there's some signs that it's not um but if it lives on they're going to continue to rule the market share that they do irregardless of what android because even people who are really close to this and study it sometimes it's so it's so nebulous they can't it's like trying to cup water and trying to get the most water by grabbing it as hard as you can you can only get all the water by cupping it you need to understand the nebulous aspect of it and i know it sounds new agey and freaky it isn't it's you it's what's called human beings we are emotional creatures so let me just say this when the record labels sat down with steve jobs and he gave them the equation the cost to acquire a customer if you will the cost to maintain a customer if you will the brand if you will the faci facilitation that a record label really should have he he made them understand that they're facilitators and apple will help them become better facilitators see the the startup community right now is in a stupidity mindset of winner take all it's fueled by a lot of this bullshit disruption story and and meme it's facilitated by some vcs that are giving too much mindset to somebody who's not able to deal with the world nothing i was 20 you were 20 faisal was 20 you're not able to deal with the world on a mindset correctly if you don't have the right guidance and sometimes vcs aren't the best guidance for the world and so they're filling the mindset of you know winner take all the, you know if steve thought that way you and i wouldn't be talking about probably any of this right now because the the whole system wouldn't have been built you know it, it, you know it might seem like it's winner take all we created what he was really doing was changing a philosophical bend and 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 he did it and i believe that algorithmic currencies are going to do the same thing i don't have any doubt it's going to not be successful that you know it's sort of like asking whether gravity is going to be successful you know <laughs> yeah. listen gravity is democratic you can't stop it you really can't gravity is democratic <clears throat> it doesn't care who you are how much you're worth what position of power you hold today gravity will have its way with you at some point in time sooner or later you will give in to the law and the law is called gravity and the same thing is going to happen to these types of currencies it's a manifest destiny now this is not politics let's just take a step back and say is it valuable to you to be able to send a reward to somebody who's giving you something in return. Yes. And could you have gotten it for free? Yes. But you know that the 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 force of nature will be stronger if you can fortify that currency, if you could make it not into a drip but into a stream, a river, yeah. an ocean. That's what it's about. Absolutely. And and you know, I think you made a really interesting point with with the large incumbents um Faisal I'd be curious to hear your perspective on do you look at say Visa Mastercard you know if you're running these massive operations essentially taking a 2% 3% fee on top of every transaction making billions of dollars what are you thinking right now are you 
are you worried? Are you optimistic for the future? Um, you know, are the, are we going to look back and say, "Wow, do you remember credit cards?" I I, I think Visa, Mastercard, you know, just have a, an eye on Bitcoin, nothing more. Uh, they're too big right now to get worried. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe you know, ten, fifteen, twenty, hundred years down the line, they'll say, "Oh, what a mistake it was." That was the our watershed moment, or what have you? But uh, I, I I see where Brian is going with this, and I and I agree. You know, if if I could get, you know, in this part of the world, if I could charge one rupee, and one rupee is such a small denomination in, in U.S. currency, you can't even charge it. But if I could get paid one rupee per view to look at my article, you know, uh, and if Bitcoin could facilitate that, that'd be an excellent proposition. And uh, likewise, you know, when we hit payment walls on, let's say. New York Times or Wall Street Journal, it's it's what twenty dollars or ten dollars per month. I just want to view one article, and if I can pay quarter a cent or half a cent or you know something like that to view an article, uh, the current systems of Visa and Mastercard simply don't allow me uh, allow that transaction to happen. And if Bitcoin could somehow do that, uh, and it can, uh, you know, it'd be a no-brainer for me to pay. And I like what Brian has said and touched upon, where he says, you know, if we could somehow make a new protocol, uh, I don't know, in HTTPP, and P means price, or HTTPM, you know, where M stands for money, and by just simply enabling that protocol means that when someone views your page, you get paid for it. Uh, that would be just awesome, you know. And uh, to build on the, uh, the Bitcoin protocol and then make an, you know, you have to understand money was the first app they made on this protocol. So I'm sure we're going to see some very innovative uh, applications that will come out that we perhaps have not thought of yet. Uh, if somehow, you know, Stack Exchange could uh, incorporate Bitcoin uh, protocol into it and money into it. So whenever you look at a, a question and you give an upvote or a thumbs up, you know, the guy gets paid for it. Uh, mm -hmm. How cool would that be? Mm -hmm. So or, I, 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 think, I don't think so. We, I don't think so. Visa and Mastercard are looking at it uh, from that point of view at all. Mm. That's almost that's that's actually a good perspective because I tend to believe it's it's liberating transactions that wouldn't have otherwise occurred. Right? Exactly. If, I, if I'm working on something at three o'clock in the morning and it's a bug that I just can't fix, and I'm working on it for you know two hours, driving myself crazy, and it has to get done by the morning. And I happen to stumble across a Stack Exchange article with some guy, you know, in another part of the country or world describing exactly my problem and how to fix it. I mean, that is worth, God, that is just worth so much. And that happens, I mean, you know, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, the new OS X came out or something like that. And, and you know, people have uh, uh, an issue with whenever they connect a Thunderbolt display to it. Uh, you know, it blacks out. And it happened with me. So uh, I went and saw an article. So, so I, uh, let's say I figured it out. I figured it how how to fix it, and I put that up. Now, assuming that there are I don't know fifty thousand people that will eventually over the next two years come to my article and read it and and you know get help from it, I'd like to get paid for that time. So that'll be a really cool thing where I write an article or a you know a, a post once, and everyone who you know gets benefit benefited by it, I get paid very micro amounts, and and, and I think that'd be a really really cool mm. ecosystem because mm. content suddenly has small value associated with it. Yeah. Now I'd be curious to hear uh, both your thoughts here. I think this is a interesting topic, especially as Bitcoin and other currencies are in their early stage arbitrage. Right. You have Bitstamp and you have Mt. Gox. Uh, if Bitstamp say is trading at you know eight ninety nine and you have Mt. Gox at nine 
45-ish is about the difference. Couldn't you buy on one and sell on the other? And I actually, uh, I, I, there's a really interesting post that describes if this is possible and if it isn't and kind of the checks and balances to keep this system equal. Oh, I've, I've done that. So uh, as of today, right now, which is the 13th of January, as where I am, uh, there's a $107 difference between Bitstamp and Mongox mm-hmm. right now. And if I send money into Bitstamp, I buy Bitcoins at $900. It's $1,007 in Mongox. I transfer it over there and I cash out. Now, the problem is that money that I've cashed out at Mongox is not going to be available in my bank account for next at least week or 10 or 12, 15 days. So I've done the arbitrage once. I wait for 15 days, then get the money, you know, channel it back to Bitstamp, buy it again, and try to arbitrage again. So it's they've made the process slower. And when the crash happened recently in December, uh, the arbitrage opportunity almost went down to zero. Mm. So it's very interesting. So if you need to arbitrage it using you know non-automated systems, you essentially need a lot of money for every day the system will be keeping your money. For example, if Mongox is keeping your money for 15 days, then you need 15 days of uh, 14 days of additional money to play and arbitrage. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's almost a checks and balances, right? Because as you talk about a system that's very low volume, total transaction volume, and you talk about that's your prime, you know, we have a just large discrepancy between two, two different uh, exchanges. <clears throat> You're going to essentially move outside what they call the bid ask central. Yeah, and I ask. think and I think all the exchanges have put this in place uh, to make sure that uh, they sort of slow down the, the cash-out option and, and the cash-in option to mitigate this uh, particular effect of you know uh, being able to arbitrage. I mean, if, if the cash-out was almost instantaneous into your bank account, guess what, I'll take that money and go back, you know, do the arbitrage again, cash-out, go back, do it again. So by putting a delay in, a, a self-infused delay, that's what I would, I would think that they're doing of about 10 to 15 days, they sort of are mitigating the arbitrage effect. Mike, let me uh, add another dimension to this. Uh, you know, that's one level of arbitrage. I think the bigger level is the arbitrage between all of the other al- alternative algorithmic currency. Um, for example, uh, you could buy a whole lot of Litecoin, and you can convert Litecoin to Bitcoin at different times of day or night, and the arbitrage opportunity and spread, potentially, if you do it the right way, is larger than between two exchanges. And a lot of people just are not ready for this, but I personally know people who have made hundreds and thousands of dollars of trading uh, between Namecoin, Litecoin, and Bitcoin, and, you know, currency. Um, and that's only going to rise. Um, from a miner's perspective, and I'll give you the nerdy aspect, there's something called multi-pools. And multi-pools only make sense when you're doing um, uh, a uh, script-based um, uh, alternative currency, um, uh, algorithmic currency, and Bitcoin is not a script-based currency, but I don't want to get too much into minutia. But there is about 30 script-based currencies where you can use graphics cards on your home computer, even CPUs, and you can start mining it at these multipoles. And what the multipole does is it keeps searching for the best uh, coin opportunity and mines the heck out of it. Well, that's where the difficulty is the lowest, the the currency trading value is the highest. 
and the return on time invested, how many coins you get, is the highest. And it's a incredibly, they're growing very complex systems. And in my mining on these multipoles, it's been phenomenal. For example, I could make more Bitcoin, if you will, by mining 16 alternative script coins at the same time through these multipoles. Now, they're not doing all 16 at a time, but they're shifting from one coin to another maybe over the course of an hour. So you might go from doggy coin to a non-coin to, uh, to uh, Litecoin to LX coin to peer coin to world coin to prime coin. I mean, and, and all of these are dizzying to people, and they appear to be worthless coins to a lot of sideliners saying, well, you know, that's, you know, a millionth of a Bitcoin. But the difficulty level, that's your ability to be able to solve quickly or easily, and the number of coins produced, sometimes 100 coins in, a, in, in, in one, one uh, solution to a problem in these pools where, you know, maybe three or 400 of us get together in mine. And, you know, you start adding these all together. Now there are exchanges which openly trade all these things. And there's arbitrage between that. So there's layers of arbitrage that nobody really, I don't want to say nobody, but very few people understand. I think while the greater world gets to under, let's even say the technical greater world gets to understand this, it'll be three years later. Uh, the people who are really making a tremendous amount of money right now are doing things like this. And uh, so a lot of people think, oh, the, you know, the Bitcoin train left the building and I could have made, you know, got 10,000 Bitcoin and only cost me, you know, 13 cents. Sure. In that regard, yeah, you know, but and the next big thing is not going to be so linear. It's not going to be I create a coin. I make millions of dollars. Some will do that. Some of these coins are going to do incredibly well. Feathercoin did some great things. Litecoin is blown off the chart. I think we really hit the three topics today that we wanted to. You know, we talked about what are the risks, some of the things that will contribute to its success or failures, uh, if that is the case. What are the opportunities around arbitrage? And, we, you know, Faisal talked about different arbitrage opportunities in different parts of the world. And then we kind of segmented into other currencies, uh, mining different currencies, Litecoin, Doggycoin, Namecoin, etc. Um, so I'm really, I'm really happy with what we were able to cover today. And I'd say we'll call today uh, a podcast officially number one with the great introductions in the beginning. And then we can continue discussion around Bitcoin if we so choose or if we want to move on to another topic uh, for the time being. Honored to be with you guys today. Really enjoyed it. Really Great. enjoyed it. Great. guys. Take care. Talk Take soon. care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Listen, there's a reason the ultra-wealthy have been investing in fine wine for centuries. Historically stable returns and a lack of volatility make it stand out compared to traditional assets, especially during a downturn. But now you can invest alongside with them with Vint. Vint is an SEC-qualified investment platform that offers shares of the most sought-after wines in the world. So join the thousands of investors diversifying with fine wine and spirits. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co.